This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The New Heaven and the New Earth, Part 3, was recorded at Wellspring Church on August 4, 2019. The text for this message is Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them, all the women died. After all, after them all, the woman died. <laughs> In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for you, the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. About 50 years ago today, there was a worship service held of 400,000 people in a place called Bethel, New York. Some of you know this worship service, and it's named Woodstock. Author Brett McCracken describes Woodstock as a mass. And it was a mass gathering celebrating music, drugs, sex, and so-called peace. This gathering in essence, ushered in a new era in the 1960s, often thought of as the turning point of the counterculture movement. And he describes it this way, that it was a festal concert gathering as a spiritual fixture in the liturgies of our secular age. It was truly the worship service of secular humanism. One attendee of that gathering said this, it was indescribable the feeling that came over me of warmth and, oh my God, there are this many people in the world that think like I think? It was like meeting your brothers and sisters. Another attendee shouted, we must be in heaven, man. <laughs> when that many people gather together with so-called love and peace, the first inclination that many think of is, this is heaven. A gathering of people who perfectly express love. And I think if we examine the culture of entertainment and music, you find there is that almost direct correlation between how one feels about people, especially those whom they express love and even romantic love towards, and heaven. I remember in the 1980s, that was quite a theme. Actually, yesterday I was sitting in a restaurant, and it happened to be playing 80s music. Brian Adams comes on, and he starts singing about heaven. Belinda Carlisle wrote a song called Heaven is a Place on Earth. And 
What's interesting about it is that there's always that connection of heaven is that time where you first fall in love. You meet the person whom you dreamt about. And they come along and you have this romance and suddenly you think, I'm going to get married, fall in love. That's heaven. Or is it? Today, we're going to look specifically about that idea. What does it mean for us to have the relationship between heaven and marriage? The idea of falling in love. We're going to look at it by first examining future marriage, then past marriage, and then present marriage. How does looking at our future marriage reflect on our past marriage, and then what are the implications of our present marriage for us today? First, future marriage, and we see what marriage looks like in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 32. And in it, there's a group of men, religious leaders called the Sadducees. They were another party other than the Pharisees. So they come along and they decide to do what the Pharisees often did, which is to try to trip up Jesus, to test him. The thing that's unique about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, unlike the Pharisees did. And so they try to trap him with sort of this conundrum that takes place amongst those who marry and have multiple marriages. The scenario has a man dying and he has no children. And because of the Mosaic law, which Jesus knew well and the Sadducees knew well, they knew that when a man died and he left no children, then it was the responsibility of the brother of that man to marry that woman and bear children on behalf of the brother. It's called Leverite law. And so what they do is they prop up this scenario where this Man dies, and another brother dies, another brother dies, and they all marry the same woman, and they, they're in the resurrection, and they say, well, whose wife is she? And then Jesus responds in verses 29 through 30, says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, when we resurrect from the dead, Jesus is saying there's no marriage. On the new earth, there's no marriage. And that really begs the question, why is there no marriage after we die? And perhaps for some of you, you might think, I hope you think this way. If you're married, you think, well, that's sad. That I, I don't know if I really like that. Can really there be a heaven, a new earth, when the person that I've spent so much time investing in and living my life with, actually there's no marriage. To understand why this is the case, we actually have to look back at our what the past marriage looks like, what Genesis describes. Again, Genesis. And again, if you know the Bible, you know that the future relies on the past constantly. And so we're going to look at the first marriage again, the past marriage. And we know a few things about this marriage from Genesis chapters 1 through 2. We know, first of all, that there is a clear-cut gender distinction 
between a man and a woman because that is innately given as we're created in God's image. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You have to understand in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that's prior to God creating Eve. So God had a plan, a blueprint, and it was to create a man and a woman distinct of each other so that the lines would be very clear. The next text says that it speaks of a relationship between this man and a woman. We see this very specifically in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or a helper suitable for him. Notice, and this is very important, is that in this verse, Adam never expresses that he's lonely or that he's alone. He never says anything about that whatsoever. In fact, he had been busy naming the animals. But it was God's determination for Adam. And to me, that just seems a bit odd. Because after all, why would Adam be alone or lonely when the God who perfectly satisfies is present there with Adam unimpeded by sin and rebellion. How could it be that the eternal father who satisfies immeasurably and infinitely is present with Adam and Adam would ever feel alone and why God would even determine that Adam would feel alone? That's a conundrum. But I think when you examine it, you begin to realize that this really says much about who God is more than it says about what Adam was feeling. That God is a God who looks to bless far more than we could ever ask or imagine. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the person who places their hope and trust in God will bear fruit a hundredfold. A hundredfold, that word is a little confusing because it actually means 10,000 times the amount. That when you place your hope in Jesus... Jesus isn't there to try to make your life miserable with a bunch of laws and rules and regulations, which so often is a real misnomer and a, a lack of understanding of who God is. But God is a God who is looking to bless us 10,000 times the amount that we could ever get by our own efforts or by what this world offers to us. And so for Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is Adam is there, He's probably satisfied. He is. But what happens is that God looks and says, you know what? I'm going to bless him 10,000 fold. Far more than he can ever ask or imagine. And he's going to do it by bringing about another image bearer, unique and distinct, a woman. And this woman would provide a unique community to him that a dog could not. A lion could not. A frog could not. And as he's surrounded by these animals, none of those things could ever provide for him what this woman would provide. And so Eve is created and is created as God's word describes as a helper suitable. Now, here's the big question. What is Eve helping Adam with? A lot of times, especially in a, in a culture that sort of tries to 
blur gender roles and lines. This text is often given by people who see that there are distinctive roles that a man and a woman have within a marriage relationship. And so oftentimes this word helper is one that is not looked upon too nicely because it's often seemed lesser or demeaning. But a few things about this word helper is that the word helper also is a describer, a modifier that describes God himself. That's not a light word. It's a very powerful word. But even more so, I think the key part of this is what is being a helper about? What does it mean for Eve to be the helper towards Adam? It is not a general word. It's a very specific idea. And the idea is this, is that Eve's role is to help Adam find their delight in Christ together, to find their hope in God. It's not just simply about doing life of raising children or work, but it's actually the point of being a helper is that Adam was satisfied on his own. God was there present, but Eve would have this responsibility of doing what only Eve could do, which is to join together and find an even greater delight in God himself. Psalm 11 describes, as David writes, of what it looks like when two people come together. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What David recognizes is that the place of ultimate pleasure which, by the way, Woodstock failed to see because it's not in drugs, it's not in sex, it's not even in people. But David, the place of ultimate pleasure is with God himself. In fact, it's pleasures, eternal pleasures, pleasures evermore, are right at his right hand, not literally, but in his presence. And Eve has this responsibility, and she has what only Eve could do, which is that the two of them together would be pressing one another to find their hope and joy and satisfaction in God. That's why God created marriage. Husband and wife are united together to represent union with God and to find our created purpose together in God alone. That's what marriage is all about finding our satisfaction together, spurring one another on together to find our delight in him. And here's the thing is that the whole point of this text of marriage is that marriage is lesser. It represents something that's greater. The greater is the relationship with God. What we have in marriage between a husband and a wife is only a symbol of what is something far more powerful, our relationship to God himself. I have yet to find a person who loves Jesus as well as the spouse loving Jesus so much that together they're growing in their affection for Christ together to find that marriage struggling with self-pity or anger. That just doesn't happen. The more a unique person pursues Christ, and then another unique person pursues Christ. And the more they're encouraging one another to pursue Christ, usually, always actually, what happens is that that couple shines. 
there is a, a pleasure that is shining forth for one another, for Christ, and for others. It is a proportionate growth. The more you find your pleasure in Jesus alone, the more you find pleasure in one another. The reason why that is a truism is because God made us inherently as pleasure seekers of himself. And so the more we find and rest in, in our delight in him, as David sought in Psalms 16:11, the more we will actually enjoy one another. It, it comes together. It is an actual fact. So if this is the purpose of marriage, and by the way, romance is not the purpose of marriage. Companionship is not the purpose of marriage. Protection, provision, comfort, all of those things are sub-level purposes. But the problem resides in when we find and make one of those sub-level uh, purposes to be ultimate, that's when marriages start breaking down. Companionship, romance, community. As we've noted, the new earth will be infinite with all of these things, but with Jesus, in Him, in Christ. And then because it's in Jesus, it's in with one another. In the new earth, there will not be a hint of disagreement or sorrow or pain. That's gone forever. The first day of your eternity in heaven, as you meet a stranger, that relationship and that connectedness will far, far surpass than even five decades of a marital relationship here on earth. You have to stop and sit and think about that for a moment. That as much as I love my wife, and we might be married for Lord willing, decades upon decades in this world, as soon as I go and be with the Lord, as soon as I meet another person eternally, our affection and relationship will be stronger than anything I have, any relationship I have in this world based on just simply on this world's affections. It, because in this world, there's still an impediment of self-centeredness, of my brokenness before others and before God himself. So the implications of understanding and knowing there is no marriage in the future, that our past, the past marriage sort of points forward then to what is to come, that impacts, it must impact what marriage looks like today. And if you really get this, you will thrive in your marriage. We see this in present marriage, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. I have preached this passage in, in weddings many times. I've preached it on Sundays. But one thing about Ephesians chapter 5, it's often we see it through the lens of a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church. But it often, that second part of that statement, as Christ loved the church, tends to be subsidiary to what we think of as primary. The primary is husbands love your wives. But in actuality, really, it's the second part of that statement which has to be exalted. And the end result of Christ loving the church is husbands loving their wives. We get that backwards and there's no way a husband can love his wife. Not really. 
If we don't really understand deeply that Christ has loved me, He has loved us, He has loved us so much that He died on a cross, He gave everything. If I don't really deeply soak my heart into that every moment of every day, I will never be able to love my wife. Not really. So here's what having a right view of our future marriage, which is no marriage, our past marriage impacts how it impacts our present marriage. First is that marriage needs Jesus at the center. God's design for marriage is not that a husband and wife will be married eternally. And it's not that they will have a strong marriage in heaven. That's exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 22. There is no marriage. It doesn't mean that marriage is unimportant. It's very important. But how you approach marriage will in every way affect the staying power of that marriage. If you place your hope and your dreams on either a spouse or a future spouse, if you think to yourself, if I just fall in love with the right person, if we have common interests, if we can have laugh together, take vacations together, have a, a thriving marriage and be able to do all that we do. And if that's our greatest goal, your marriage will not last. Not really. Not fully. Not with thriving. Not with flourishing. Marriage itself, if it becomes your worth, your identity, the end all of everything, then you will be sorely disappointed. Because marriage itself, as we see in the Bible, is that it was never designed to be what only Christ can be. And when we mistake the two, it is no wonder that we struggle so much. We strive to be liked, to be loved, to be appreciated. We don't feel it. We don't get it. It's like stepping into a car to go across the country and expecting to get from San Francisco to New York in five to six hours. And when it fails to do so, you drive in, you get into your car and you say, I should, why is it not getting there after five or six hours? You get out of the car and you start kicking the car and you say how rotten the car is and this doesn't work. And well, you're trying to get something that to do something that it was never designed to do that only a plane can do, at least currently right now. Marriage was not designed to be your ultimate identity and satisfaction. It's meant to point you to the one who is your ultimate identity and satisfaction. Marriage is meant to bring about pain and sorrows and striving. It's meant to show you that this world is still broken. But within it, there's redemption, there's renewal, there's restoration. It's meant to point you to a brokenness where you need a savior. And that Savior is the only one who satisfies you. Not in a self-pitying, oh well, I guess only Jesus understands me. You never, you never help me, but Jesus is the only one who I can turn to. That's self-pitying. It's not what it's about, but it's to say, in, in the striving, in the struggles, I see that Christ is my Savior. Not you, wife. Not you, husband. If you're not understanding this, then get ready for exasperation and frustration and to be deeply disappointed by your spouse. If you're sitting here disappointed by your husband or your wife because they're not spiritually leading your family or she's not really caring for you or understanding you, or he's not initiating love, reconciliation, 
Maybe it's because ultimately deep down in your heart, you thought that he or she would be your savior, the one who would satisfy you. This is a grave mistake for every young couple, every dating couple, every engaged couple, and every married couple. They think that romance or beauty or circumstances, as long as you have all the things that things that you want, that you think, if I once we buy the house, once we have children, once our children get into college, once they get into a certain type of college, once they get into the list goes on, and we think if we once we get to that place, then we'll finally love each other. I have a feeling that's why so many couples spend so much money on weddings. They try to get the perfect Pinterest wedding. You know, everything just perfectly placed. So when they look at those pictures of the smiling fiancé, you know, with all the trimmings, so much money spent, as long as we feel and look like this is a successful marriage, and I can look at that picture on the wall and say, Oh, remember when we were that much in love? That's a fallacy. It's not even love. Not really, not ultimately. Because love is, we see love through the labor of love. Through the covenant of love and commitment of love. What that is, is a picture. And it's a picture that, I don't know if it ever really will perfectly satisfy us. It never will. The reason this never works is because marriage was designed to cause the other to find God satisfying. I have, again, when I think about those couples who are delighted in each other, who are finding such joy and thriving in all their years, and you see them, you see what you see is their journey together to follow Jesus and to place their hope in him. It's not just simply being roommates or not even simply getting together to sort of make it through, to put their kids through college, but it's actually to find Jesus better than everything else. And the reason why they thrive so much is because God has designed ultimately marriage to be that. When Jesus is at the core and center of your life and of your relationship, only then can you really thrive and flourish in your marriage. Secondly, is that marriage is a signpost to the perfect marriage. We see this in Ephesians 5. Again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, that's a really important little statement, phrase, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's so that is purpose. It's saying, here's the purpose of marriage that we might in some way reflect our relationship to Christ and what Christ has done for us. When you, husband, love your wife by your willingness to give up your own needs and desires and rights so that your wife will love Jesus. You don't do it 
because you want the marriage to work. Or you want to appease her. Or you want her to finally be happy or get you, get her off your back. If I, alright, I'll wash the dishes or I'll just get her off my back. If that's your goal, then that won't bring any joy or delight into your marriage. You have to want to do this to love her by giving up rights, privileges, so that she will find Jesus. She will be pressed towards her. Again, the end goal is not so that she will have, she will let you do what you want to do. That will never get you to a place where you want, you find joy in this marriage. It is so that she will pursue Christ. And if the goal is that, then you should be willing to say, I'm willing to give up anything that I can do that will lead her to love Jesus more, not to love you more. That's the danger, husbands, is that we think, I want to, I want, I will do whatever it takes so that my wife will love me and care for me and do what I want. That's tit for tat. And that is debilitating to your marriage. But it has to be, I will do whatever it takes so that she will be released and free to find her greatest satisfaction and joy in Jesus. And here's the promise later on in that same text. It says, he who loves his wife loves himself. The end result of that woman finding her delight and joy in Jesus is that the two of you together will find joy in Christ. And it will be to your utmost satisfaction. More than if she were to try to serve you to do anything you wanted. Actually, you don't want that. You think you do. You think, I wish she would do, she would make me my favorite foods and she would be there and prop up my feet and massage my back and do all these things. You think if that happens, then my life will be heaven. That's the Woodstock mentality. It's the secular mentality. And that is no happiness at all, no joy at all. But again, when two people are pursuing Christ, which we are inherently created to find and delight in, the more we are pursuing him, Together and it's spurring one another on to do that, the more joy we have. It's the promise of God because that's who we, God created us to be. So we know this to be true because this is our eternal destiny. This is why having a right view of heaven helps us to have a right view of our marriage today. That the more we understand that we're not meant to be married to this person, but God has released us for so much more. And so therefore, it guards us against idolizing this marriage. Making sure that we never go down that road to think that marriage is the end. Another point is that marriage ends, but relationships are forever. I mean, that sounds like a Michael W. Smith song. <laughs> but while there is no marriage in heaven, I will know and, and cherish my wife far more than I ever have or will in this world. So it's not to say that there's no relationship. And I don't want all of you to think, wow, does that mean I'm not going to know my wife or my husband when I go to heaven? No, you will. You will actually love her and cherish her or him more than you ever did in this world. 
But we won't be saddened to think I won't be married. In the new earth, everything is enhanced relationally. Unlike here in this world where everything is tainted because of self-centeredness. That's gone forever. The New Testament makes clear that you will know people. And you will know your wife and your husband. You will know them far better, again, than you have ever known here. Matthew 8.11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Get ready to meet Abraham. To meet David. To meet Paul. And Peter. And Rahab. And Esther. And Mary. You're going to meet people whom you can sit with and just hear them tell the stories of what God has done. And if you've ever heard the testimony of someone who has is just so ecstatic about knowing Christ, how you just delight in doing that, how Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Well, in heaven, it's going to be hearing story after story, and we're just going to be astounded. But you're also going to meet relatives. You're going to meet your wife and husband. You're going to meet your children, your parents, and your friends. We're not just going to meet people we know, though. We're going to meet a lot of new people. In heaven, in the new earth, it's going to be a continuation of developing new relationships. And I know for some of you introverts, you're thinking, oh, great, that's like, that's misery to me. But the reason why it's misery is because we still have so much that is broken in us and in others. Because there's, we're still so concerned about our physical appearance or maybe looking presentable, wondering if someone's going to accept us or maybe there's jealousy. If, oh, if there's three people, then I don't know if this person's going to like me more, maybe this person or then there's misunderstanding and is someone trying to use us or degrade us? Trust is never an issue. All those things that makes knowing people difficult, gone forever. So the exciting part of it is that the new earth is a place where we, with multitudes, infinite multitudes of people, and we never ever have to worry about anything that impedes our delight in another person. When you understand relationship that way eternally, you can see why marriage itself, which is always meant to be a shadow, a reflection of that reality, why it ends. Why it's not necessary. Next is that marriage is not the end goal. Francis and Lisa Chan, in their book, You and Me Forever, have a chap chapter entitled, Marriage Isn't That Great. I like that title. He describes what he means this way. Marriage is a brilliant creation, but it's not God. Let's be careful not to reduce Christianity to a belief system that helps us build good families. That is a danger of the church, of the evangelical church today, that it's all about creating good families. That's an idol. The biblical narrative centers on a marriage with Jesus. Earthly marriage is just a shadow. Now, don't get me wrong. Marriage is beautiful. It is a gift, gift of the Lord. And for those who have yet to marry or who perhaps will never marry, you need to know that even though as we as the church sometimes wrongly exalt marriage. That marriage was not designed to be an end to loneliness. I am afraid that too many who are unmarried 
have this picture of marriage being, if I just get, if I only found that right person, I'll never be lonely. But I think I've shared this before. I heard someone say this, is that the loneliest place in the world is a king-sized bed where two, a man and a woman are laying there and they hate each other and they're married. It's the loneliest place in the world. Far more than anything that anyone else could ever face. That marriage is not the answer to loneliness because it was never designed to be. Not in and of itself. Those that think this is true will always seek this satisfaction, even if they're married. And that leads to marital problems. It's really ironic because we think if I can get married and find this person and think that they're going to solve all my problems to being lonely, suddenly I just get so disappointed in the fact that it actually doesn't solve my problems of feeling lonely and therefore I become lonely. And then it leads to conflict. And I get angry and irritated and frustrated and exasperated with the person saying, you were supposed to be the person who makes me feel like a complete person. Someone who is satisfied. But you have disappointed me sorely. And so therefore, I'm angry at you. That person does not understand that we were, that person does not understand marriage is never meant to be that way. And so what happens in that place is that either divorce takes place because the loneliness is too great and the disappointment is too great or extramarital affairs or staying together for the kids' sake. Well, let's just stay together up until the kids get out of our house, go to college, and then we'll get a divorce then. We hear about that quite frequently, quite often. And if you were to go back to the very beginning of that marriage, you would have seen that there's a lot of disappointments as to the purpose of why they're together in the first place. So for the single unmarried person, perhaps who never marries, I want to say this, first of all, you are not abnormal. And you are not to be pitied because you're in some sort of lesser state of existence. Because the only way that would be true is if there was an eternal marriage. But quite the contrary, the, the unmarried person who trusts in Jesus and who knows and follows him and obeys him and pursues him is more acting out in the way in which God has created him or her to be than the married person whose marriage is not causing the other to pursue Christ. That is to say that the unmarried person who is walking alongside, following Christ, obeying Him, finds, will find more delight and satisfaction than the two married people who are not pressing each other to follow Christ together. Marriage is not the end, Jesus is. And only when you get that will you finally find your joy in marriage. Let me close with a few points. First is that marriage on earth in respect to the new earth is sort of like watching someone else's home videos of a worldwide trip they took. Have you ever watched someone else's home videos? They're so excited about it. They say, i got to show you my videos. And they, they turn it on and you sit there and you're like, wow, that's nice. Yeah, you went to that place, you went to this place. 
And they're saying, but I did this. And you see their excitement and zeal and their passion. And you're just going, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. But inside you're saying, I want to stop watching. This video is so boring. Why do we feel that way? Why do they feel that way? Because they've lived it. No matter how awesome it is, no matter how beautiful, you didn't live it. Marriage on earth is sort of like that in comparison to marriage in heaven. I want you to think that that is true, because it is. And only when you realize that to be true will you really begin to live life in marriage. One more metaphor, similar. We have listened to, we've been going to Africa and, and serving uh, the different communities in sub-Saharan Africa since 2005. Since the beginning of Hands at Work, almost. And every time, and I've gone as well, we've shown videos and pictures and movies. The Zimbabwe team, they're going to do that again. And some of those, those members of that team had never gone to Africa before. So they've watched the videos and the pictures. But I, I, can't, I, I know this to be true. I've asked a few of them. Is it the same as going, watching the videos? And the answer is always no. George Sneeman, when he first came, the president of Hands at Work, when he first came to speak at Wellspring in 2005, he just, I mean, he just struck us. We were all going, oh man, listening to those stories. I mean, people were crying and weeping and they'd say, he'd say, I want you to come and visit. And someone afterward, he told me the story, someone afterward said, you know what? And he gets this question quite often. Wouldn't it be better if I just gave you $3,000, just write a check right now and give you $3,000 than me coming? Because you could probably do more with that. And he'd say, don't write the check. I want you to come. And he's very wise because he knows that when you go and see, you'll give a lot more than $3,000. <laughs> that's not what he said. <laughs> that's just true. I really believe it to be true. But there's an investment factor in that. But more of it, it's come and see. And you'll, you'll be changed forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. I really do think it's like that. It's marriage in heaven I mean, versus marriage on earth. Marriage on earth is we see dimly. It's like looking at home videos or watch, listening to someone present about Africa. It's really nice. It's, it's inspiring. It can even be beautiful. But when you go, you're changed forever. It's what we have to look forward to. We will see fully. That's why Revelation 21.4 makes so clear that the relationship between in marriage, is really about Jesus and the church, Jesus and us. It says, a bride adorned for her husband, Jesus. The church, the bride adorned for her husband. Jesus paid a price. His blood shed for the bride who was stained and, and spotted, unfaithful. That's me and you. So that through his blood, he presents the bride forever free, spotless, unstained, and this marriage will not last even six decades. When someone celebrates a 50th anniversary, that's, that's dramatic. That's exciting because these days, not too many marriages make it that long. 
And so if there's a 50th or maybe even a 60th wedding anniversary, it's really tremendous. But in comparison to our eternal marriage, meaning with the Lord, meaning that one day we will see Him face to face, and that will enhance infinitely every relationship that we have. And it matters not whether you are married or unmarried. What matters is that He is our ultimate satisfaction. That is what defines our relationships today. So until you get that, you'll never be truly happy. Not with friendships, not with marriage, not being single. You'll always find something lacking. We always will in this world, but when you see what we're living for, don't give up then. The promises are real. You just have to understand that You've been looking for someone to satisfy you when only Christ can. And when you get that to be true, you will never be disappointed. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I pray that for those of us perhaps who have bought into the lie in thinking that someone other than Jesus is the only one who satisfies, I pray that we would come to the truth today and see that Lord Jesus, you have given everything so that we might have life in you. Father, I really pray for those marriages that have been stuck or have maybe perhaps have been in conflict, discouraged. Maybe there are some people in this room, wives or husbands, who are so deeply disappointed in their spouse that they think that they will never change. But what they fail to see is that maybe their own heart, their hearts need to change because we've been looking to find marriage and spouses as the answer to our lives and your word tells us that's the wrong place to look help us O oh lord to find our satisfaction in you so whether we're married or unmarried help us to see O oh lord that in christ jesus alone you make every relationship that we have satisfying delightful pleasures evermore and it is the world of rebellion and sin and rejection of you that tries to buy into this lie that something out there or someone out there even those who who should be close to us that they take the place of you and that is a an idolatry that will break our souls. So help us, O oh Lord, to find our rest in you. In Jesus' name.